I'm Doug Wright, and I'm the author of the book for Grey Gardens. I'm Scott Frankel, and I wrote the music to the musical Grey Gardens. I'm Michael Corey. I'm the lyricist. Now, uh, first thing I want to do is thank you, gentlemen, for introducing me to these amazing women and this astonishing story, because I didn't know anything about it, and I know there's this wonderful documentary, and lots of people do, but I didn't. And I think you've done the most splendid jobs. So that's the first thing I want to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. Which of you actually found the story first? This is Scott. I, I'm the I'm the guilty party in this in this iteration. Uh, I had seen the documentary film many times in the 1990s. It was a bit of a cult uh, uh, film. It, uh, you, it would be shown at midnight screenings. People would have uh, video cassette copies of it and pass them around secretly. And I knew people who could quote lines from the film, people who could do an ED impersonation. So it, it had that quality. I was mesmerized by it, but it never occurred to me that it could be adapted for the stage, and particularly as a musical. Except one day it did, and around 2000, and I uh, rang up Albert Mazels, the surviving documentary filmmaker. His brother David had died some years earlier. And I said, perchance, are the stage rights available for Grey Gardens? And they were, although they were just about to give them away to an opera composer in France. Do you know what? It would make a good opera. It would make an awfully good opera. And I, But I said, please don't sign that document until I can come in and make my case. And my case was, I love opera, but these two women loved American popular music. Uh, the Gershwin and Cole Porter and Noel Coward and the Kern, Rogers and Hammerstein. And I said, you know, a musical would be closer to their vernacular of what they loved and maybe might be more fitting way for them to express themselves with that in mind. And, and I managed to be persuasive and Albert let us have the rights. I'm sure you're absolutely right. I mean, maybe some could do an opera later. Yep. I don't know what would have happened, whether it would have been a very small chamber opera with just a few people, but we'll just come in a moment to how Doug opens it out. But would one of you just like very briefly to sum up who these women were and what the stories we're telling? Doug. Edith and her daughter Edie Beale were cousins of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And as a result, uh, when it was discovered in the 70s that Aunt Edith and Cousin Edie were living in a 28-room dilapidated mansion with 52 cats and inveterate hoarders, it caused uh, tabloid headlines all over our country because they were uh, members of fabled American aristocracy, if you will, and uh, so the story became a sensation. They were members of uh, the Bouvier family, which is one of the oldest, most revered, and established families in American society. And the thought that uh, two such high-born women would descend to such decrepitude and uh, horrifying circumstances uh, was a subject of real fascination for, for many people at the time. And so obviously everybody assumed that this was how the mighty fallen. But I, actually, what you prove, and I think the documentary does as well, is that it's not like that. I mean, they are victims of circumstance to some extent, but they are brave and amazing feisty women living a life. You know, I think, this is Scott, I think that the title Grey Gardens is very apt because it's not black and white, quite literally. I think both of those things are true. I think they were bohemians at a time when the men in their 
spheres did not want that kind of wife or mother or daughter. Uh, I think there was the onset of some mental instability. I think that they ran out of money. And I think that they, we would say now, had a kind of classically codependent, dysfunctional relationship. And so I think it was not one of those things. I think it was all of those things in tandem. That said, I think they found a way to coexist with each other, to live, to find a, a new way to live. I think they considered the film a very beautiful representation of what their life was like, even through the harrowing, difficult parts. Some people find the, the documentary very difficult to watch. The flesh really is sagging, and you could practically smell the smell and see the filth. Yeah, I hear you. Actually, I thought e young Edie was dropped gorgeous at 50-something. She was a toned body. Mm -hmm. She looked after herself. She sat in the sun. She got round alopecia by wearing these amazing right. headdresses. She's a style icon. You know, she really, not quite a role model, but on the way to. Well, I think she managed to face each day with such optimism and energy and hope that just around the corner maybe there would be that call for a job opportunity in her career or maybe there would be a that Libra man would be at the gate or maybe she would be able to get out of Great Gardens as she's always said she wanted to do all the while simultaneously maybe knowing that that was not likely to happen but she put on her revolutionary costume mm -hmm. and she did the dance every day and, and, and then started again the next day. I think that's why she's such, such a role model for a lot of particularly disenfranchised people. I think that's why the gay community, I think, took her, embraced her so wholly because they too were outside of the mainstream as she was. Uh, Michael here. Little Edie defined herself as staunch, a staunch character, and even spells it for us. Um, and by that, I think she she meant very seriously that the uh, maxim that her grandfather taught her, the hallmark of aristocracy is responsibility. She felt that very keenly, even in reduced circumstances. She never forgot herself. Her mother never forgot herself. She insisted, even amidst the squalor, that Grey Gardens is one of the great homes of America. And they continued to live that way, totally unsupported by reality. Well, we should perhaps move to the musical that you've made out of this. And I would say you've turned grey into gold, but um, <laughs> on the other hand, the grey is pretty beautiful too. I mean, the verdigree perhaps. Should we call it verdigree, you've turned uh, into gold? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, does that go? Yeah. Yes. Okay, Doug, I really need to talk to you because it's your wonderful coup de théâtre to introduce the first half. I don't think the musical would work if we didn't know what was behind it. And even though it's a construct of yours, you have looked at the real facts and you've, you've put something together that's completely plausible and I think true to the women. So you, do you want to explain your wonderful first act, which goes back to 1941? Yes, thank you so much. And uh, the facts we've taken to create the narrative in Act One are, are largely true. Big Edie was divorced uh, by her husband who fled to Mexico. Uh, Little Edie was briefly engaged to Joe Kennedy under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Uh, Big Edie did like to take over family functions with her sing-alongs. She did have a pianist named Gould, but uh, all of these events didn't necessarily occur on one singular summer afternoon, and that's, that's our invention. 
Uh, I have to credit my collaborators, though, because uh, when Scott initially approached me about the project, I said an emphatic no. I said, I revere the movie too much. These women are too singular, and it's the cinema verite aspect of the film that makes it so memorable and enduring. And if we put them on stage, it'll be artifice. And, and the, the documentary is brilliant psychological portraiture, but it is not conventional narrative. And I said, there's no beginning, a middle, and an end. And for better or worse, the musical theater requires those elements. So these two went out to lunch uh, uh, to discuss how they might bring me on board. And it was actually their revelation. They came back from lunch with a tablecloth they'd written all over. And there was one giant box that said 1941 and one giant box that said uh, 1973. And they held up the tablecloth for me and said, I think we figured out Acts 1 and Act 2. And suddenly I saw a story with causality and with shape and with uh, consequence, and I was able to gleefully hop aboard. So these gentlemen solved the riddle for me. Yes, I mean, the act one that you create is supposedly this fantastic party that Edith Senior is throwing for little Edith's engagement to a Kennedy. And, and we get to meet young Jackie Onassis and what? Uh, Lee Radzewell. Yeah, and yeah. Lee Radzewell <laughs> as well as children, the wonderful child performers that you've got incidentally yeah. there and I think you need to know all that she's a wonderfully camp character mm -hmm. at that point is Biggie shall we call her Edith who wants to take over this party and sing is it nine numbers originally yes yeah. she's prepared a little concert of mm. not one but nine separate numbers and, and uh, Michael uh, created some absolutely mm. fiendish songs for her from a song called Itty Bitty Geisha all the way to a song called Hominy Grits all of which are woefully inappropriate concert fare so she's not the best judge of selection Yes, yes, we should talk about the amazing music. I mean, you've, you just have a ball, the pair of you, don't you? So I just want to talk about your partnership for a minute. How many numbers are there in the whole show? Well, there's a great many numbers. <laughs> I've never counted. <laughs> Maybe 20 songs. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of yes. songs. And yeah. there's, there's so much variety. And I was watching it again in a new light last night. And very seldom does an opportunity come to write what we call in the theater liftable songs. And there are so many in this, but that's because they work in more than one way. A song like Will You can be sung outside of a show, but it's so much more effective when it's sung by a mother who watches her daughter leaving. Or a song Another Winter in a Summer Town could be amusing about middle age by uh, many women, but it has particular significance to singing in this show. Or Two Peas in a Pod, which is like tea for two. It was wonderful to be able to write a song that is a song, but that totally worked in a plot sense in this. And that's what the recital idea gave us. Yes, well, that was just a wonderful idea. Um, you know, I don't know whose idea that was. Go on, someone put your hand up. Right, okay, Doug, that was very brilliant of you. Congratulations. <laughs> you. On, because that just gave us such an opportunity. And, of course, it gives Jenna yet another opportunity to prove that she is versatile. I don't know there's a better word than versatile, just stunning, really. What she can only do, sending herself up and, and also going for the absolute emotional heartland. So what's so interesting is that the songs in that first act on the eve of I think we can say it's a disastrous engagement party. Sure. I think you can feel that from the yeah. moment it starts, it's all going to go horribly wrong. Some of it's pastiche, obviously, the wonderful Hominy Grit song, where this is totally inappropriate. She's going to be a black mama in it, and she is the, at the top of the white 
Yes. Aristocracy. <laughs> and, you know, your toes are curling. She's yeah. doing it in front of her father, who's appalled because you never misbehave in front of the help. And they happen to have a, a black butler. Yeah, yeah the black uh, butler. To stand there and watch it. Um, and that was, our, our idea would be that his own son would be the gardener who appears in the documentary. In yes, Act I saw two. that. So I was thinking, was that you? Oh, I see. I wondered. Yes. I thought, oh, look, another real character. Well, but you'd sort of we, extrapolate. When we, when we had the idea of one and two, we, we both acts fed mm. each other. So the real character, who just appears briefly in the mm. documentary, we said he should be the butler, his father. Um, and it was it was really a kind of collage the way this story came together. Yeah, he was absolutely brilliant. Could you just name check? That character is named Brooks. Uh, and the actor. It's Akko Mitchell plays Brooks Brooks Junior in the first act and Brooks Senior uh, in the second act. Oh, Sorry, but vice versa rather. Yes. 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 It's a wonderful part you've written for him because he's very dignified and very twinkly. But he ha does deliver some killer lines as well, well. He understands the women, and he has to watch this humiliating exercise of hominy words, and then he offers it when the father says, what is this? He says, oh, it's one of her freedom songs. Yes, and that brought the house down, and because that's, it was just so bonkers, as I said, and so inappropriate. So you'd had a ball, ball with that, but at the same time, I think you're sort of channeling the music of the times without actually pastiching it, I would say. But would you, would you think that's I think so. I, I mean, we made a nod to a, uh, a Noel Coward song, mm -hmm. too, a very clear one with a Drift Away. Uh, but it had a, a significance. He knew what would happen to the rest of his life, and it paid off in Act Two when we find out that he died derelict in a, a single-room occupancy hotel. Uh, he drifted away. And then you have this other completely different opportunity when you have the two women alone in their squalor. And I have to say, we're conducting this interview on the set, which I think is probably re back ready for Act One, is it? Uh, yes, uh, it's it's a marvelously derelict uh, environment uh, in, in the second act. And in the first act, uh, partic particularly through costuming, you get to see some of the grandeur and splendor of the women uh, in their heyday before things went wrong. What's so wonderful is that you've got this amazing staircase, but as I say, it depending on how you light it and what you can see and how many props there are around it, it's either, you know, the sort of crumbling staircase that's probably covered in cat, cat droppings in the second half. <laughs> um, we can't see them, but you can sort of imagine them and smell them. Or it becomes this beautiful staircase down which the debutante can drift, you know, the, the, the beautiful engaged girl and all the rest of it. So, again, your designer has done a brilliant job. I, I agree. It's a, there are uh, scenic designers, Tom Rogers, and our costume designers, Jonathan Lippman, and our uh, lighting designer is uh, Howard Hudson, who's f fantastic. And, they, and t under Tom Sutherland's direction, it's a, it's a very different production than New York, uh, mm -hmm. and it's been wonderful for us to see it uh, reimagined so beautifully. And there are, you know, the authors, you, you write down the music. I wanted to be as specific as I could, and Doug wrote down the script, and Michael wrote down the lyrics. And But if you're not involved with the production, you, you think all the ingredients are there. And sometimes when you actually see it, you think, well, did they leave out the chocolate? Because I didn't taste any in the cake. But in this iteration, uh, we, we saw, it was quite the opposite. We saw and and thought about things that maybe had not occurred to us or that we had always hoped for but never really experienced. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, Tom Sutherland's known for that anyway, but the casting is stunning right the way through. Before we get on to, to Jenna Russell and Sheila Hancock, your new find, who plays young Edie, I think this is her first breakthrough role. She's almost out of college. Yes, uh, her name is uh, Rachel Ann Rayham. 
she's marvelous, and it's a very, very tricky role. Uh, she plays a young Edie uh, in Act One, who on her the afternoon of her engagement party to Joseph Kennedy Jr. and she has to be both plausible as a debutante and poised, but she also needs to exhibit some of the behavioral ticks and quirks and clues that will augment considerably over the interval and when we meet her next 30 years later in, in very different circumstances. And I think she rides that line very, very successfully. Yes, I mean, it's a strange idea, and it, you know, but it works, that you've got Sheila Hancock is old, older. Yes. Big Edie, if you're trying to explain if someone's listening to this, they understand. So we see her at the beginning and then the whole of the second act. But brilliantly, Jenna Russell is young Edie, older in the, at the beginning and in the second act. But in most of the first act, back in 1941, she is playing Sheila Hancock's role as a, a, a mother of the bride. Yes, it's a tricky bit of double casting mm. for Jenna. She's, she is the, the mother in the 1940s sequence, and then she plays her own daughter 30 years later. To, to now, Sheila is, plays her mother in, in Act Two. You know, it's a, in the States, uh, people it, it, jokingly a little bit call that, that double role a little bit the King Lear of, of female roles in musicals. It's extremely demanding. Uh, Acting-wise, musically, it, it's disparate. She has to belt. She has to have a soprano. She has to be funny. She has to be tragic. She has to sound like uh, the very particular mid-Atlantic uh, accent that Edie has, particularly in Act Two. And uh, so it's a Herculean, it's called, a, we say, a big sing in America, mm -hmm. which means you're on stage a lot and you have a million songs to sing. And I frankly can't imagine anyone other than Jenna doing it. I've known her a long time. Uh, of course, she was marvelous in, in uh, Sunday in the Park mm -hmm. with George, mem memorably so. But I, she was always so keen to play this part, and I was always so keen for her to do it. And uh, I was so happy we were able to find a time and a venue and a calendar when, when she was available. And Sheila, of course, is formidable. I can't call her a national treasure because she hates that. She really hates she that. She really <laughs> hates that. Uh, and she is so, um, I mean, her timing mm -hmm. and her regal nature is extraordinary. I mean, she's she also, in some ways, shares the very a similar trait with the actress Mary Louise Wilson, who played it in New York, in that both women are very unsentimental in real life. And it's a wonderful thing. They bring a no personal vanity to their acting. They, as we say, maybe let it all hang out. And and they 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 love the the challenge of 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 being fully liberated and exposed on stage. And you don't often see that in a, in a veteran actress. Sometimes they sometimes that they just want to look pretty. Well, she does look pretty. Well, actually. She, that's that. Well, that's of course the maddening thing that she lets it all hang out and she looks incredible. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Um, actually, having now watched as much of the documentary as I've had time to, and I'm going to watch the rest of it as well because I'm just so drawn into it. They actually look remarkably like the original women, particularly Jenna Russell. She, she's not just channeling her; she almost is her. This this woman who. Oh, there's the most wonderful bit in the documentary where she tries to explain about wearing um, pantyhose with the scarves over the top. And so she, what you can only do with, a, I think it's a scarf, you know, she has one round her head to hide the alopecia, but she'll say she makes that into a, a plus factor, not yes. a minus factor. And then she hangs the scarves and she can have them upside down, she can do what she likes. And Jenna, I mean, I think your costume um, designer did a brilliant job, but God knows he had a lot of help from the original. Wow! <laughs> 
So I can't imagine anybody else but Jenna playing, it, because of that at least. She's so funny and so uh, emotionally accessible, which pays off in spades mm. at the end of both acts in particular, that you really see, her, you experience her feelings in a very immediate, visceral way. But yes, technically the demands with the accent and with the singing and with the costume. She sings a, a very bravura number uh, to a wonderful lyric that Michael wrote called The Revolutionary Costume for Today that opens the second act. Which, which is brilliant. It rather, it rather stops the show in a way that I don't often see in this country. But she explains and uh, how she uses costuming to fight the conventionality of the neighbors and the town of East Hampton. And she's going to be an individual, damn it, no matter what state society wants her to be. The unspoken truth beneath that is that she has no new money to buy clothes. Mm -hmm. So she takes the poncho off, off out of the closet and fashions it into something else. She takes a, a shower curtain or a drapery cord and makes fashion out of it. And that that is very staunch. Yeah, yes, it is very staunch. Yes, now you you had quite a lot of help then with your lyrics and yeah, with your dialogue from what the women actually say. I couldn't believe how much of it is actually in the documentary. The whole first verse is basically based on Edie's exact text, and then I just had to find parallel verses for the. So I brought it into it uh, Jackie and Lee and the cousins and the Earl Blackwell list and and the Kennedy inauguration all with that same feeling and finally her personal statement and neurosis about neighbors peering through the privet hedges at her. Yeah that's what I love. Now the other thing is as I say Doug you too you use a lot of dialogue that is there for you and you use it brilliantly not in the first half obviously where you had to recreate it and you've wonderfully sort of gone backwards working on what they're like in, in the present but what I also loved was the addressing of the audience. I presume we were being the Maisel brothers. Yes, exactly. We felt that to put the Maisels brothers in the piece itself would be redundant because we had this audience, 500 people, 240 people, sitting in the dark serving that function. So the women are able to uh, make their case. And when you say, I, I, I so agree with your thought that these were remarkable progressive women almost trapped in the wrong time. And had they each been granted a broad audience, the culture might have rewarded them for the very idiosyncrasies and feats of daring that instead they were more or less ostracized for. So we finally give them that audience. And when you talk about the text that they give us, they did speak in this remarkable vernacular that for me is the place where Tennessee Williams and Samuel Beckett meet. And uh, in adapting the work, there's so many seminal lines from the film that, that fans of the movie can quote uh, verbatim. And so Michael and I had endless discussions about which of those aphorisms would fit most comfortably in dialogue and when they would acquire greater surprise by being embedded in lyric. So it was almost like we had all their wonderful idiosyncratic maxims in a list and we're bargaining over them. You get this for lyric, I get this for dialogue. No, I'm using that moment for, for a song. And so uh, the font of material that these singular women gave us is, is just an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, absolutely. I love that insight. I was going to ask you about the creative process, but that's just a great insight. You also mentioned Samuel Beckett, and I know someone has compared the two women to Steptoe and Son, like a female version of that. <laughs> but they're a bit like, the, you know, the tramps and waiting for Godot as well, because they're trapped together in this sort of endless bubble 
which society has put them in, in a way. I mean, that's where they found themselves. So they can't live with each other and they can't live without each other. It's that Morecambe and Wise, I would say, as well. I think funny. No, I think that's absolutely true. They are a kind of yin and yang. And I, I'm fond of saying that, to me, the most painful, baroque, uh, a twisted love stories are usually between a parent and a child, even more, I think, than spouses. And our parents both unwittingly inflict the wounds upon us, but they're the same souls who tenderly bandage those wounds. And so there is, uh, at the core of any parent-child relationship, an astonishing mixture of profound love and sometimes unbearable pain. And I think that's where I hope the piece finds its universality, the back and forth between mother and daughter that has resonances that I hope transcend its shabby locale. Oh, and more than transcend. And, and also, you know, one should say that you think it's always going to be the elderly mother dependent on the, the daughter. It's not like that. I mean, they're a support system for each other. Absolutely. Totally. And you can't imagine either of them functioning independently. Uh, Albert Maisel said something quite lovely to us when we started work on the piece. He said, at different points, you'll be tempted to demonize either the mother or the daughter, and you must remember that this is a love story. And if you ever forget the ferocity with which they love one another, you will be failing, my ladies. And, and I thought that was a, a wonderful note to give us as we embarked on the project, and one that we tried to keep foremost in our minds. Well, well I certainly think you did. Now, just two brief things more. How you use the rest of the cast in um, Act 2. You, I thought, oh, I'm never going to see them again. Was I wrong? They're that this wonderful chorus. Sometimes they're ghosts. Actually, at one point, they're the cats. That's which, is, that was my favourite bit, because I kept wondering, <laughs> are we ever going to see the cats? And then they just channeled cats with that. I mean, I'm not talking about cats, the musical sort of cats. You know, you just knew they were being the cats. They loved these little kitties, and they mm. saw their past in the kitties. Mm. And she said at one point, uh, oh, Edie was so mean to me last night. She only let one little kitty for me to sleep with and keep me warm. But uh, yes, they become the cats. They become the voices and a recording of uh, young soldiers. They become the chorus of Reverend uh, Norman Vincent Peale. But I love the gospel-y sort of chorus. That was one of my favorite bits. And because you use the stairs brilliantly in that. And they come back as themselves, as a young soldier, as mm. the grandfather, as young nieces, yes. Jackie and Lee. I think there's that seminal line when she says, it's awfully difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. And I think that, particularly in this production, but also in the way we wrote it, we wanted to illustrate that by having the cross-pollination between the acts and having ghosts and memories come back, because I do think that she was um, hobbled by that notion, that fulcrum of past and present. And I think that's so much about what the what the show is about, uh, reconciling those two things. Scott, could you remind me of the name of the brilliant actor who plays Joe Kennedy, the young man? His name's Aaron Sidwell, he's fantastic. In our first act, we have uh, Joe Kennedy mm -hmm. to whom little Edie is engaged. And in the second act, there is a very uh, lovable slacker, a kind of teenage handyman who lingers about the house and offers his services to the two ladies. And both those roles are portrayed by the same actor. You'd never know it though. You wouldn't, and I was delighted to have my brother-in-law 
brother-in-law and sister-in-law here last night who uh, have seen m many iterations of the show. And at the curtain call, they were looking frantically <laughs> to find Jerry, and they only saw Joe. And it wasn't mm. until well into the party following our opening that they realized in a thundering moment that it was the same actor essaying both roles, which is a, a real testament to this young man. He's quite wonderful. Yes, absolutely. And I really wanted to name check everybody, so thank you for doing that. But actually, Jerry also a real character. And having seen him in the documentary, he really channeled him well because he, he looked so he I mean obviously they've all watched the documentary but he was perfect this young man who comes around to help there's an amusing story to be told there too uh, Jerry is still uh, very well and living in New York and he uh, contacted us when he saw in the newspaper that the musical was opening off Broadway and we got to know Jerry quite well he's a, a visual artist a sculptor and also a, a New York City cab driver and uh, when the play was running on Broadway, he would uh, turn down 47th Street at about 10.45, and he'd pick up patrons as they exited the theater with their programs in hand, and he'd proudly announce, you know, I'm in that play. I'm that fella Jerry, you know, 40 years later. And uh, it was really thrilling. So sometimes you could buy a ticket to the play and get chauffeured home by one of its characters. <laughs> oh, I think that's the most wonderful story. You just bring me back neatly to the Maisels. And so I'm just going to sort of finish here. The, the Maisels, I guessed immediately they were Jewish because I know that's the sort of Yiddish word for mouse. And I know they probably came from Central Europe and indeed they did. And your little partnerships, another little Jewish partnership. So I just wanted, and, uh, sorry, excuse me on this one, Doug, but I just <laughs> wanted to very briefly talk about another famous Jewish songwriting partnership? I mean, do Jews have to do it in pairs or Jews in twos? <laughs> Leonard Bernstein had a wonderful theory about American music that it was uh, Jews, African Americans, and Quakers. We seem to be holding up our end. And we can't leave out the gays. Oh, no, no, gays well, and Jews, we, we're, we're ticking two of the boxes. We're doing well here. So just to tell me briefly how you two came together, because you've written quite a few things together. It wasn't in Hebrew school. No, well, we'll come back to that in a minute, because you've written something yeah, called Kabbalah, haven't you, Michael? I lived in Israel for a while and studied with Kabbalists and lived in their communities and... Uh, was fascinating while I was doing that, and then I forgot it and wrote Grey Gardens. Uh, yes, well, with its Catholic characters, but maybe it takes one to know one. Catholic, you know, you have to have something to rebel against, perhaps. I think so. I think that, that um, really all religions are the same. Mm. Uh, we fight so much about them, but uh, the need for spirituality in our lives, for belief in something greater, links us all. I'd say that, but there's also more to being Jewish than that. You're sort of yeah. stuck with it, aren't you? I mean, it's a card that you're dealt. I suppose being gay is a card that you're dealt. That you have to, you know, you either go with it or you rebel against it or whatever you do. But it's, it's more than just a religion. You know, well, you, you can use it, I guess. Yes. I mean, I think, I think those roles, particularly, obviously, with the advent of, of the, the greatly improved situation of, of gay rights uh, in the UK and certainly in the US now with gay marriage and, and uh, general, uh, gr a much greater societal acceptance, certainly, than we three were growing up. Uh, you know, the, I think the topography is, is changing. Certainly in the theater, being, being gay and Jewish, though, was never a problem. No, I guess it was a plus, a very good card to be dealt with. When I was a child, I was orthodox, and uh, my grandparents were very strict, kept kosher, but my mother was a, a rebel, and she mixed up the Passover dishes and the meat dishes and, the, and consciously drove her parents crazy. 
Um, and so we made the bold step to going to conservative. We never actually got to reform. Um, and I have no question that, that, that uh, a large part of my pathos for these characters and the rebelling against the system comes from that. Just tell me about your upbringing, Scott. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I, I, this is Scott, yes. I'm, I confess to being very lightly reform. <laughs> and I was a, a precocious uh, musician as a child, and I wanted to uh, focus my energies uh, on uh, piano study and composition. So I eschewed a bar mitzvah to a little bit of the scandal of my parents and our friends. I'm sorry to disappoint the readers and listeners to this, but... but uh, It won't. It's so interesting, but, you know, of course, it was a more assimilationist time as well. So it's interesting, and particularly in American Reform Judaism, how I do think that my conversation is much more peppered with Yiddish expressions than my parents, well, for that's instance. that's what I'm talking about. It's a card you've been dealt, yes, and you're yes. using it. I, I'm, I'm happy to have been dealt it, I have to say, uh, socioculturally in, in, in particular. Musically, Scott writes a lot in minor keys. And, you know, Cole Porter once told Irving Berlin how much he admired him because he says, I always write a song in Jewish minor in my shows because that's our audience. Yeah, and that's what I love. Well, for Goyam, Cole Porter wrote some good Jewish songs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All things considered. All things considered. Well, I just have to say... Doug. As the Goy from Texas, I recently uh, had to author a benefit in honor of James Lapine in New York, and we uh, did it in the style of a bar mitzvah. So this boy was on the internet trolling for bar mitzvah festivities, and the estimable Stephen Sondheim complimented me by saying that he was making me an honorary Jew. So uh, I flatter myself one. I don't know if I can live up to it, but I flatter myself Mazel one. Top, Doug. <laughs> it's a mitzvah. <laughs> Thank you so much, the three of you. This has been wonderful. Uh, more power to your, your collective elbows, and yes, mazel tov to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.